Oh, the pressure burns. I think at night she'll look more like her. Like she got it all figured out. And because of the size of her thighs and the pout on her mouth. Welcome to No Makeup, a podcast sharing authentic stories of really cool women who sign up to honestly and bravely tell us their stories. We believe stories can do a lot. They inspire, they console, and they shape our understanding of the world. So welcome, as we interview women we admire and ask them to, figuratively, and literally, if they want to, take off their makeup and tell stories from the heart. Our podcast is proudly recorded at Vermont Public Radio. Welcome to No Makeup. I'm Tiffany Bloomley, host of the podcast, and I'm joined by producer Marissa Parisi and our guest today, Melinda Moulton. Melinda is a local pioneer in environmental and socially conscious redevelopment and has been since 1983. And with her business partner, Lisa Steele, Melinda has spent the last 25 years rehabilitating Burlington's waterfront. Today, we'll talk about the challenge of that work, her approach to business, her politics, and her involvement in critical advocacy. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Marissa and Tiff. Thank you. Well, before we dig into the story of the waterfront, because I think it's a really interesting one, um, and I'd like to spend some time on that, I can you tell us how you got to Vermont and what you'd done before then? Absolutely. Um, I was at Harvard uh, working for Dr. James Watson in his department, um, in 1969, I had just graduated from Catherine Gibbs, and I got placed at Harvard with Dr. Watson of Watson and Crick DNA, and I was working for a young professor, Mark Potashny, who was part of Dr. Watson's department, and um, really just embracing this incredible career. I was marching with Daniel Ellsberg against the war in Vietnam. I was part of the coalition against the war in Vietnam, and Mark was best friends with uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and I was sort of in this great movement of civil rights and anti-war and the women's movement, and I was only 19 years old, and I met my husband, who's f- who picked me up and brought me to Vermont for the summer because his parents lived up here, and we lived in a little sugar house in Westford, and um, we went back to Harvard. I actually stayed on payroll through the summer, and he took me back, and I announced that I was leaving, and we moved to Denver, where he finished his degree, and then he brought me back to Vermont to settle in Vermont to be close to his parents after we had our son, Eli, who was five months old when we moved back. We moved back on Christmas Eve, and um, within four months, his parents had moved to Florida, but we stayed in Vermont, and we became homesteaders. And by homesteaders, for those who might not know what that term means? It means we didn't have a lot of money, and we started looking for land, and we found a beautiful 10-acre meadow on top of a hillside in Huntington, Vermont. We bought it for $9,000, and we started building a little stone house that uh, was—we followed the Helen and Scott Nearing method of building stone homes because they were the movers and shakers of homesteading in Vermont for about 30 years. And so we read their book and started building the stone house. And we started building it in July. And my son was only two years old. And we camped out. We were in a tent living on this land. I collected 36 truckloads of stone in Starksboro with a baby on my back. And we built the stone house. We had about 12 friends who came up for the summer. 
And then when it started to get cold, everybody went back to college, and we were still in a tent living on the meadow. And um, end of October, early November, my son had an ear infection, and there was woke up, got out of the tent, there was six inches of snow on the ground. And I said to my husband, I can't do this anymore. And he said, but honey, I'll have a roof on by Christmas. And I said, yeah, but I can't do this. So I moved in with a friend, and by Easter he did have the roof on, and we moved into this house that had plastic on the windows and no running water and a wood stove and no telephone and this very rustic little tiny 800-square-foot stone structure. And that's called homesteading. Is We built the whole house for $16,000. Wow. We got an FHA loan for half of a percent, so our mortgage was $82 a month. Well, how much um, of, about that experience led you to development work? None of it. I mean, I came from a construction background because my dad was a general contractor in Pennsylvania, so I was raised in a construction background, but none of it. I mean, I really was a stay-at-home mom. We worked on our film, Legends of American Skiing, for five years. We were filmmakers. Um, but when it became real that we were we didn't have money, we didn't have any health insurance. I had both my babies without health insurance, and our cars weren't running very well, and life was getting tough tough on the hill. I said, you know, somebody has to go get a job. And that happened to be me. I was the most employable. So I applied for a job developing the Burlington Waterfront, and I got the job. And <laughs> so none of you my responded to an ad develop the waterfront well it was a, an ad looking for someone to work as in part of a team mm -hmm. and I was hired for an administrative position I did you know operations and when I walked into the office there was nothing but a phone on the floor and it was the early part of the waterfront development that had a lot of people involved and I was one of, the, of, of a lot of people that were brought in to uh, run this office to do this and development for people who are new to Burlington or are young, I think it's really hard to imagine Burlington without its waterfront. So can you just describe what was there um, before? Sure can. Yeah. When, we, when, when I arrived in 1983, um, there, there was nothing there. It was the peas grain that was barely in operation. The Hague Mill was empty. The McKenzie meat, meat packing was empty. There were a couple pioneer shops that were empty, and there was a scrap metal yard, and the the Moran plant was still chugging away, spewing its stuff into the air, and um, there was probably you know quarter of an a, a quarter of a mile of barbed wire fence that separated the people from the waterfront, and there were people used to tell me how they'd come down and they'd shoot rats on the hillside and. It was basically a place where you did not allow your children to go. You didn't want your children hanging out down there. It was pretty rough. And um, so that's what it was like. And that's when we started our work. The vision, um, did it originate with you and Lisa Steele? Was it some... It was a very large... It was, it, was a, it was a larger group of people, and it was called the Alden Waterfront Corporation. It was this 27-acre, $100 million project. And, of course, it didn't happen because that's not how things should happen. Well, in fact, I think that there were maybe 22 failed attempts to develop the waterfront before you brought your plan right. to the city council. Yeah, in the 1900s, there were about 22 attempts to develop, to redevelop the Burlington Waterfront, and they all failed. And when we came, we proposed this huge $100 million, 27-acre project with hotels and 
and you know tons of retail and office and redoing the whole harbor and it was just this massive project and the city went ballistic they just were like we can't have something it was like a rouse's project in baltimore um and people were like we don't want something like this they didn't really know who we were there was a lot of skepticism so the project ended up failing and everybody dispersed and um lisa and i lisa being the owner of the property um, remained, and we joined forces together as a team to do incremental redevelopment with a social and green vision. We just renamed the company. We had to rename the company because it had, we decided to do slow incremental 25-year increment development. We changed our whole mission, our vision. Well, same, describe that. So what was your approach? Our approach was that we wanted to do something very slow and incremental. We wanted it to be local. We wanted to have our stakeholders be local people. We wanted to work with the city and make sure that what we did was what the people wanted to see there. We wanted to protect view corridors. We wanted to focus on green development, sustainable green development, which really the word sustainable wasn't even a word when we were looking. I mean, we were pioneers in the green sustainable movement in a big way because it really wasn't. There was Bill McClay who was doing work in that, but not many people, Blair Hamilton, Bess Sachs, but there weren't a lot of people doing that kind of work. But she, but Lisa and I were both young hippies, you know, raised with peace and love and social justice, and we both fought for the same causes. And we wanted our company, the Main Street Landing Company, to be a company that, that, that really espoused all those virtues. And so we changed the name to Main Street Landing and put together a mission statement and pulled together a great team of local architects. And we did this 25-year vision for the waterfront, which we got a standing ovation from the city after we presented it. And then we started very slowly and incrementally um, putting together the plan for construction. So it took us from 1982 to, to 1993 before we got a shovel in the ground. Wow, that's a lot of that's a long time, and that's a lot of patience. It is, but it was had to be done right. We had to know what people wanted. What did you want to see there? We knew that people wanted to see mixed use buildings that have office, retail, and housing in them. They wanted a twenty four hour feel. They wanted them to be public spaces, lots of outdoor patios and promenades. They wanted connections to the water. They wanted localism. They wanted the rents to be affordable, so local businesses could be there. Um, and they really wanted pedestrian-friendly. They wanted parking hidden underground. They didn't want it. I mean, the, the, we surveyed thousands of people and interviewed thousands of people to find out what they wanted. And finally, we had our vision, and then these architects and landscape architects helped us create this 25-year incremental plan, and that was then time to build. So we built, started building. Did you did you run into a lot of resistance from the traditional development community or contractors, architects? First phase of the project, which was in the early 1990s, the opposition came from the Green Party, pretty much the Greens. No development on the waterfront. Didn't want us building anything. Da, 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 da. And there was appeals, and we had to go to court and get through it all, and the city helped us get through it. And then when we... so. But it was through their input. This is so amazing because this is why I love permitting. And as a developer, developers kind of sometimes get mad at me because I love zoning regulations. I love regulations because through the Green Party telling us what they didn't like about our project, we were able to go to environmental court in front of Meredith Wright and present a better project because of what they wanted. So our development became better because of what they wanted. 
We reduced the parking by 50%, by 100%. I mean, not 100%, by 50%. We had 200 cars, now we're down to 100. We were able to bring all of the buildings down to grade instead of having them above a parking. So the whole project got redesigned in environmental court. And uh, we really appealed to what people wanted, and it made for a better project. You were once quoted, though, as having said that I still have blood on my hands from crashing through the glass ceiling. So what, what was that about? I think the blood on the hands comment was that I, as a woman trying to find a career in the 19, late 1960s, was always suppressed by males, and primarily male bosses, who you would be the brightest person in the room, but because you were female, you would do the report, you would do the research, and you hand it over to somebody else who would make the presentation, and they would get all the credit. And they also got the big salaries, and you would get you know minimum wage or whatever. I lived that world. I mean, I grew up in that world. And finally, here we were, two women, with the capacity and the ability to do this great work that was really transformational. And we could say, you know, kind of like, screw you, you know, we're going to do it our way. And if you don't like it, we're just going to do it. And it's going to be great. And it's going to work out. We're going to make money. It's not going to fail. We're going to be totally successful. And we're going to support all these people in great businesses. And you wait. I mean, at the end of the day, this is going to be great. And you can just sort of say, screw you, we're going to do it. And that was kind of like bursting through that glass ceiling and just being able to sort of thumb our nose at all these other developers who had a totally different, you know, Development 101 is very different than the way that Lisa and I developed the waterfront. And when I lecture across the country about this to real estate students or planning students, they say, wow, well, that's not, I've never had anybody talk to us about doing it that way. And I'm like, well, there is, a, there is another way you can do it, and it works. What works between you and Lisa? We just love each other, and we're very close, and there's great respect. And there's a tenderness there. We both really think about the same things in the same way in a way that I never could have done this work with a, with a man in the way that we've done it. I'm wondering about a comment that you made one time recently. It, you're more radical now than you have ever been. And I'm, I'm wondering in what way and what has shifted your political orientation in, in the, over the years? because I'm getting old and time is running out. And I was an activist at 14 when I was burning my bra with the rest of the women's movement and fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment and um, marching with Daniel Ellsberg. And I was, I've been a radical activist my entire life. But I'm getting old now. I'm 66 years old and I have grandchildren. And I'm seeing where the world's going. I don't have time to sit on my hands or on my laurels and just watch it go by. So I've become very radicalized to join boards like Planned Parenthood and other boards that that are doing great work and helping uh, protect certainly women's rights, reproductive rights. And I don't have time, so I have to really get busy and focus on these issues because time's running out and the world's going in a really strange place. And so I'm, I guess I'm more radical now than ever before. And with social media, you can really affect a lot of people and get a lot of change happening with the push of a, of a button. One of the issues that I know you care a lot about is the issue of autism. Can you say a little bit more about sure that? Sure enough, we'll do. Um, my grandson, Roro, is autistic, and he was diagnosed at the age of two, and he's nonverbal. And so for the last—he's um, going to be 12 in August— 
So for most of his life, I have been very close to this little boy who is nonverbal and has a neuro, is neurodiverse. And there are now one in every 48 children or one in every 48 boys are now being diagnosed with autism. And it's a spectrum. You have a very high spectrum where, you know, the high on the high on the spectrum of more of Asperger's, high functioning, and then you have the lower functioning um, with autism. And I don't believe that the lower functioning with autism are any lower than the higher. It's just that they have more, um, they need more care. Uh, they're not able to take care of themselves as as well. Like Rowan has very li limited small motor skills, so he can't use a pencil, and he can't zip up his pants, and um, he can't tie his shoes, which is probably why he can't speak, because his small motors is with a tongue. But he's a brilliant poet, and he's very bright in math, and he's an extraordinarily gifted, beautiful human being that I'm learning a lot from. So I am studying this. I'm studying Dr. Etard's research back in the 1700s with the first wild boy, and I'm working on a book, and I'm hoping to write a play about Rowan's life and some of his remarkable magical moments of his life that have been where you just sit and you look at this human being and you just go, the most, you're the most remarkable human being I've ever met because of the way that they see the world is in such a more beautiful and pure and natural way than we do. And so I learn from him every day. But yes, that's a passion of mine. And um, I'm really devoted to him and to, to learning more about autism and hoping that I can help other people understand that this is, not, this is not something that you should run away from and feel great sorrow. You need to embrace him, embrace autism, and allow autistic people to be autistic. Do not change them. Do not take that out of them. Embrace and allow them to become as autistic as they need to be rather than trying to make them typical. So we ask all of our guests this question. What advice would you give to a young woman of 21 that you'd have appreciated getting at that age? Well, I have three granddaughters who are eight, seven, and six, and I give them this advice all the time, and it is that they need to advocate for themselves, and they need to stand up for what they believe in, if they have something they want to do or say or accomplish, they're to do it. They're not to be afraid. And they're not to let anybody tell them that they can't do something that they feel is important for them to do. That this is their life and they, they need to make it their life and not let other people push them down. They need to stand up and speak out and be who they are and be very proud of that. And if they need a role model... You provide a pretty darn good one. I do. You know, I meet with a lot of people in my work. That's another thing that I do is I'll, someone calls and said, I'm new to the area. I'm just in town. Somebody said that I should talk to you. I'm looking for work. Maybe give me some leads. I never say no. I always say yes. I will meet with him. Maybe it won't be tomorrow, but in the next three or four weeks, I will find a time, an hour to sit with you at Skinny Pancake over a cup of green tea and talk to you about what's going on in your life. That's the greatest joy for me, actually, in my work, is to meet with other people who are looking for just to talk to somebody about what's going on in their life. So I love that part of my, my work and my life. Thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you, Tiff. Thank you, Marissa. I appreciate you asking me to be here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the No Makeup Podcast. 
Tiffany Bloomley is your host, and I'm your producer, Marissa Parisi. Our theme music is written and performed by Giovannina Bucci, and we are proud and grateful to partner with Vermont Public Radio on the production of our podcast. You can hear previous episodes by looking us up on iTunes or SoundCloud, or on our website, nomakeuppodcast.com. On our website, you will find cool links and more info about our guests. Sponsors for this episode include Elida Duncan, who did the awesome No Makeup logo, and our friends at Lang Roxbury and Wool. One last note, we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions on guests or topics, head on over to our contact page on our website, Facebook page, or Twitter feed and tell us what you think. Remember, nomakeuppodcast.com. No mask. No makeup, no mask. Run is my skin. This beautiful vessel I, I'm living in.